Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Emma Metter, and for Oge Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in the field of public health and outside of it. Emma, what are we talking about today? Well, since we have talked to our guests about the origins of the coronavirus and disinformation, personal protective equipment preparedness for individuals and institutions, and now we're talking about emergency preparedness from the public health agency side. Today, Ian and I sat down with Robert Nesgoda, who is a PhD student at the University of Iowa, but prior to that was a director for Taney County Public Health Department in Missouri and continues to consult on pandemic and emergency preparedness and other functions of local public health, such as assessment, accreditation, policy analysis, and grant writing. Yeah, so our conversation today with Robert really went into what what public health departments can be doing in order to, and what they are doing in order to prepare for um, an outbreak of an emerging infectious disease in general, but also in, re- in response to this coronavirus. And also, um, we talked with him about just general preparedness tips, because, you know, even though we may, even though, you know, the CDC is starting to say that this could be an outbreak in the United States, there are just general things that people should be doing for preparedness, whether it be for natural disasters, outbreaks, just in general. And so we talk about the different steps that could, that people should take in order to just make sure that they're in the best place possible. All right, here's our conversation. I'm Robert Nesgoda. I am currently a PhD student here at the College of Public Health studying infectious disease epidemiology, and uh, prior to that, I was uh, working in public health for 14 years. Can you talk about your career history? Uh, yeah, I uh, received my master's in public health in 2004 in, uh, at Missouri State University and began working at the Taney County Health Department in 2004. I've been an epidemiology specialist there, and then I uh, took on the responsibilities of emergency response planning. And I did that for uh, several years, and then I became the assistant director and then the director for the last five years. Awesome. So before we jump into some new content, I saw that you had a little bit of a comment for one of our previous conversations um, because between us recording it and being able to air it, there actually was an update uh, on what type of PPE is required. Um, specifically when you're wearing a mask. So do you mind um, just providing that same comment that you gave us earlier? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's really important that if you're going to be wearing a mask t- uh, to protect yourself, uh, eye protection is extremely important. Um, and, and just to kind of further on the whole idea of using a mask, a lot of times people think that because they have a mask on, they have this magical barrier. And when you have a surgical mask on, it's not about protecting you, it's about protecting other people. So if you have a surgical mask on, um, it provides a really modest level of protection. If somebody is around you that's coughing and sneezing, it might catch some larger droplets on the mask, but your eyes would be exposed. And also the gaps around the surgical mask, you can inhale those, those droplets as well. So, um, you know, wearing a mask is, is not a silver bullet. Um, you'd have to really understand the, the process of disease transmission um, and, uh, you know, wearing a mask and then thinking you can go out in public around crowds is, is really problematic. You know, the idea of wearing a mask um, to protect others is important. 
wearing an N95 to protect yourself, as long as it's uh, worn properly, uh, is, is good with eye protection, but also understanding that hand washing, uh, avoiding, avoiding crowds, social distancing, those concepts have to be utilized in addition to wearing a mask. What do public health agencies need to do to prepare for the actual illness of an outbreak? Well, most public health agencies, they're going to have a pandemic health plan already in place. So uh, by now, they've probably already started the, the preparedness process. Um, most of the plans, or say all the plans, should be coordinated with state and federal plans, as also with their community partners or response partners, schools, uh, Nonprofits, businesses, uh, emergency res- response agencies, uh, law enforcement, fire, EMS, healthcare providers. So a lot of the the planning and, and what they'll be doing is um, coordinating messages, um, coordinating how the initial response gonna is really going to be implemented. It's extremely important that when those first cases are identified, that uh, the disease response is um, very timely. We have to identify the cases, identify uh, potential contacts, and begin that process. Um, however, at some point, um, it, this whole process will transition because um, those initial cases, you'll be able to contact and trace down uh, those those contacts. But what will happen eventually is that there'll be so many cases, you just won't be able to, mm-hmm. to stop it. So uh, right now, the main focus is going to be on looking at how... Uh, incident management is going to occur, how communication is going to happen, how disease surveillance is going to be implemented, um, active case finding in particular, uh, looking at uh, laboratory testing protocols, making sure that healthcare providers understand uh, the process for laboratory testing, um, working with the infection control nurses at the hospitals uh, and other infection control providers at the hospital so that um, basically everybody's on the same page, what are they going to be the expectations in terms of how the, the initial case is going to be handled how um, infection control practices are going to occur in the hospital, but also making sure that infection control messages are getting out to um, first responders, for instance, uh, EMS personnel, uh, law enforcement, fire, because if you do have somebody in these initial cases and they um, uh, you know, have an episode at home and they're ill and they call an ambulance, a group of first responders are going to, re- to, to be there, not just uh, an ambulance crew. It's going to be potentially some fire people and fire law enforcement and that sort of thing. So everybody needs to understand about how uh, infection control practices need to occur out in the field, how the EMS crew is going to be able to transport the patient and what's going to happen when they actually mm-hmm. get to the hospital. So there's a lot to, to be doing right now. Um, but the, more, the most important thing is just coordination, making sure that everybody is understanding the current situation, how um, things are going to unfold once uh, infections start occurring and uh, where to go from there. So going, going off of that, one really important thing we know is that we need to get the correct information out there. We've been talking about disinformation and misinformation in public health around this outbreak for the last couple of weeks. How do public health agencies ensure that the correct information gets to the right people? That is a very difficult uh, thing to do. Um, a lot of times, you know, with a public information a plan, a PIO in particular, uh, those public information officers are going to um, develop their, their messages and submit it with a lot of thought and input from uh, experts and, and approval from different um, uh, people and organization. But once that message goes out, um, making sure that the message gets out to elected officials and leaders in the community, 
and different agencies is important so that they understand what's going to happen and, and can prepare for potential or questions they get from the public. But once that message goes out and you start hearing um, rumors, you start hearing that information, misinformation you're, you're, you're talking about, a lot of times what will happen is there's a balance between um, what you should respond to, what you can respond to, and, and some things you just need to ignore. Um, you know, there's some um, things that are going to implement or are going to really uh, impact your uh, response activities. You definitely need to uh, address those messages. Uh, there's some things that uh, might be uh, misinformation or fake news or whatever you want to call it from um, individuals or organizations that are outside your jurisdiction, you know, uh, nationally or internationally or whatever. Um, it's very difficult to try to address those. You know, you can put out a message about certain things um, that might, you know, impact you locally, uh, but trying to get on a, you know, it's kind of a social media uh, argument with somebody online. Uh, typically, you don't have that much time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's really important just to, you know, be more pragmatic pragmatic about it, what you, what you can correct and what you just don't say, well, that's just way far on left field. It's not going to impact us here. Um, when you do put out one of those messages, you know, understanding that um, the vast majority of people, when they hear the correct information, they're going to say, okay, that, that makes sense. You know, p local public health, state public health, they have a, a really, um, really high level of credibility. Uh, so when people hear those messages, they're going to go that direction. You also have to understand that there's a certain amount of people that um, they just are going to be completely mistrusting of any government agency, and um, it's going to be really difficult to change their mind. So when you start talking about uh, countering those messages, you know, being uh, very professional, very uh, polite in your disagreement, and, uh, you know, then just, you know, making them understand that uh, as a public health agency, you're here to help everybody. So even if they disagree with you, at some point down the road, if they need help, you're still going to be there for them. Mm -hmm. So going off of that, on previous episodes, we've noted, we've noted that related to the current outbreak, there has been a wave of racism and fake news. What do public health agencies need to do to prepare for the fake news and humanity's worst tendencies that accompany outbreaks? Um, you know, I think that keeping the idea of the context of what's going to potentially happen during a, a severe pandemic, not saying that uh, COVID-19 is going to be a severe pandemic, but... Um, you know, definitely has the potential seeing what's happening right now in, in China and South Korea and Japan and, and just the other, other countries. So um, if this becomes a, a severe pandemic, there's going to be a lot of fear, a lot of um, um, lots of concern. So what we have to do from public health in terms of our messaging is making sure that uh, we're correct in our messaging, meaning that, you know, we don't make mistakes, either misstating something mm -hmm. or understating something, because at that point, um, if people think, oh, they're trying to hide something, when uh, it, it could be just a, a, an error, an honest error. Um, so, you know, making sure that you're right, you're timely with the information, uh, you don't try to hide anything. Um, and when you start getting into um, those situations during a pandemic, when people are really starting to, to fear, really start to get a hold of them, um, messages that are giving them information about how to um, take action. And when they start taking action, they're going to feel, you know, better. They're going to be more prepared. They're going to be able to handle different situations. A lot of what we've done with our messaging with um, 
in terms of seeking health care, for instance. You know, you don't want the worried well to flood the emergency department or hospitals because then they can get potentially exposed. Mm-hmm. So messages about that would try to triage individuals that, you know, if they don't have certain symptoms, they shouldn't be in the hospital. So it's just not safe for them to be in the hospital but um, to potentially be exposed. But then again, there's also messages that uh, you need to put out so that... Um, those people that do have symptoms that need medical care, you need to get them into uh, into treatment. But um, also, that also needs to be aligned with how the healthcare is going to be receiving those patients. And once you start having community transmission, like we've seen in China, for instance, there's been a huge influx of people who are, who are truly ill in severe conditions in the hospitals. Um, that creates a lot of problems, for instance, because now you have uh, the normal hospital load, um, car wrecks, heart attacks, and that sort of thing. That's not going to, it's still going to be occurring during a pandemic. So how do you move those patients who are now uh, potentially infectious or will be infectious um, and keep those away from the non-infectious normal um, types of cases you're going to be seeing? Um, The idea of triage would potentially be that you want to send infectious patients potentially to a particular entrance to the hospital or an alternative care site so they can be uh, examined and then um, determined where they're going to be treated after that. So um, messaging is extremely important, but when you start talking about uh, conspiracy theories and and racism and things like that, um, you know, again, I think it goes back to what I said previously. You have to be really measured and and honest and and, uh, understand that Maybe a lot of this stuff is coming from a place of fear and ignorance, not necessarily, you know, an intent to harm, yeah. you know. So, um, you know, the idea of, you know, I, I read someplace where uh, people uh, were stopped going to Chinese restaurants. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's no <laughs> there's, there's no basis for that, you know. Um, so I think that as you start looking at how um, the pandemic unfolds, um, there'll be a lot of people that are not wanting to associate with one group or another. I you know, I think right now in Italy, people are afraid, or in Europe in particular, uh, they're not wanting to associate with, you know, people from Italy, you know. So it's like, well, yeah, there's a virus there. It's about maybe not the individual or that, you know, nationality, ethnic group, but it's just the fact that, you know, in their country, there's a high, you know, a high number of people who are getting sick now, and that might be it. So, um, you know, I think understanding and just trying to, um, think through what's happening and what would be the best way to prevent the spread of disease, you know, and really focus on not saying it's this group or that group mm-hmm. that might be the, you know, a threat. It, when in ra- reality, it, it's not those people or a nationality or anything. It's just, you know, people from a group that might be more fe- infected or not. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's not the people, it's the virus inside of people. Exactly, That could yeah. be anyone. Yeah. Okay, a uh, week or two ago, on the was talking about how people that she knew um, were asking her, like, oh, if I'm from this group of people, I can't get this disease, right? And it's, you know, we all have those those blind, those, like, blind spots as yeah. as a spe- species, as, as humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you have any other thoughts about COVID-19 or public health response to major outbreaks that we haven't touched on yet? You know, something that I, I think that we really need to look at is 
uh, you know, there was actually a statement by the CDC about uh, the need to prepare right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been telling my family and friends for the last, you know, three or four weeks that, you know, we need to watch COVID-19. We need to understand how this is spreading and that we need to start taking preparations now for our, our families and potentially businesses and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Because um, what I've seen in my experience and what you know, I've actually seen with, with this is that once the virus gets into the community, um, people run out to stores and they just buy <laughs> everything. Yep. You know, all the, the grocery stores are empty. Um, and, you know, it's a natural response. You know, you want to get stuff at the last minute. Um, well, this is not the time to do that. You know, once you have the virus in your community, it's too late. You know, if you go out in a large group and you're trying to uh, get groceries at the last minute, one, you're not going to get the supplies you need because um, the expectation and what's probably going to happen is uh, you may either be um, asked to stay home or you just may not want to go out, which I think will probably happen is that uh, when that fear gets to the level, you're just not going to want to go out to your house for two weeks or more. Yeah. So do you have two weeks of supplies at home or a month's worth of supplies at home? And most people don't. So waiting for the last minute, it's just not going to happen. Um, so it's really important to understand that when the there's community transmission, even um, in, your, in the region of your state or in your state or in a large city in the United States, it's going to have a really dramatic media exposure. And people are going to be really concerned. And in your community people might go out and just empty the stores before the virus actually starts spreading in your community. So um, it just makes sense to take the time now while there's not a, um, a pressing, you know, uh, a need for uh, immediate, you know, preparations. You know, the virus is not spreading in your community. You go out now when you can get the supplies, the shelves are, are full right now. Uh, and just make some preparations for yourself and your family because, you um, once everybody starts to really panic and get concerned, um, you do not want to be in that group for, for a number of reasons. Yeah, and, and you know, this isn't something that I think is too foreign to us as Americans, right? Like, it, maybe for a disease, this is this is weird and out of the normal. But, like, I used to live in Florida. Like, during hurricane season, you just kept your car full of gas. Yeah. You kept food and, you, you know, you kept a, an extra box of Pop-Tarts in case you had to drive up this upstate the next day you know my parents live in in california and they have their earthquake supplies um when a huge snowstorm is coming like i don't know about you guys but i keep just a little bit of extra canned food in the winter just because you know i don't want to have to worry about on a busy day getting to the grocery store right before a big snowstorm so i feel like americans definitely understand the principle of like have some preparedness there and so you know, treat it like any other time we prepare for, for a big event. And yeah, you're right, you know, buy the stuff early so that you aren't waiting in gas lines before you drive up the state if you're in Florida or any of the other examples. Exactly. We have uh, car insurance, we have insurance for our houses and that sort of thing. This is just another form of insurance. And, uh, you know, and it's also, you know, people shouldn't panic, you know, um, but then again, they shouldn't just be lackadaisical, lackadaisical and say, you know, this is not, this is not going to be anything. Um, it's time to be prudent and just take some sensible action and, and just, you know, get some supplies. And, and, you know, if you don't use the, the, the supplies you, you gather, 
Um, well, you'll have an emergency kit at home anyway for the next snowstorm or, mm-hmm. or power outage or whatever. So. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. You can never be too prepared and be too cautious. So I think there's a lot of little things we can all be doing just to make ourselves more prepared for whatever happens. Yeah, and, and of course, preparedness doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen, right? Yeah. Like keeping my car full of gas during hurricane season didn't mean that I thought a hurricane was definitely going to hit where I was. It was more just in case a hurricane were to come in, you know, you already are ready and you don't have to, as Robert pointed out, worry in the moment. Exactly. So changing subjects a little bit, what is one thing that you thought you knew but later realized you were wrong about? It's <laughs> uh, a lot. <laughs> um, I think, you know, in terms of public health, when I got into um, the emergency management or emergency preparedness side of things, working with the emergency managers and um, those first responders, and I think the, this is probably true for most people in the United States, you know, there's this misperception that um, there's this huge um, army of of first responders that are just waiting out there for, you know, some disaster to happen, and then they just kind of flood into a region and, and take care of things. Well, that's not the truth. You know, it's, you, know you have uh, people at the federal level, state level, local level uh, that are, are working every day, and they have, you know, responsibilities and jobs day to day. So when an event occurs, the local response is going to take on the, the burden of, of that response. So whatever resources you have locally are going to be there for um you know, the first few days. Um, there's different agreements between departments at the local level, so you could probably get some assistance from surrounding counties. But when you have a, a large-scale regional event um, pulling resources from many counties away, it takes time. Um, it takes time to get state assets as well as uh, federal assets, and federal assets are going to take a lot longer to get to the local level. So, um, you know, there's... Um, Lots of training about incident management, and people can get online and take some people training with the incident command system. And one of the things they point out is um, that emergencies begin and end locally. You know, the burden of responding to emergencies are at the local level. You know, they have the legal authorities to do so. Um, and you know, when they start requesting those um, those resources from different agencies and state and federal, um, there's usually a price tag to it. So. Uh, there's uh, a lot more to emergency response than just, um, you know, equipment and, and people. It, it gets really complex. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And our last question is, what is one thing outside of the world of public health that has interested you recently? <laughs> well, um, hmm, good question. Um, oh, no, I've been doing a lot of cooking. Lately, um, love that. Yeah. yeah, so I made some gumbo the other night, so it was, it was really good. So just doing a lot of cooking and studying because yeah, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the pod today and sharing both about you know the current outbreak and just outbreaks in general, and also thanks for sharing about with you know what you've been cooking. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. So Emma, what did you get out of this interview? I learned a lot out of this interview today. 
I haven't really thought about the emergency preparedness side and like what we should be doing now. I haven't really realized that we should be preparing now until this interview. But there are a lot of steps that we should be doing right now to help prepare and be cautious and just be one step ahead of the coronavirus because we don't know when it's going to come or if it's going to come. And if it does, we should be ready for that. So there are steps we can be taking, like going to get food and gas and just having those resources available in case anything does happen. And I think that's just valuable information for anyone in the United States or anywhere in the world to know is just that there are steps that we can be taking to prepare now. So when the time comes, we aren't freaking out if the virus decides to become prevalent in our community. Yeah, and and as, as we talked during the conversation, the fact the fact is that these are steps that we should probably have been taking just in general. Yeah, um, for sure. Whether it be for you know, there are just general preparedness steps in case. Um, of a natural disaster or an mm-hmm. outbreak. I thought it was really interesting his, uh, the conversation that we had about just how how you had to be discerning in, in a position of local or state public health in what information you decide to combat, which rumors are just too far out there. I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, and you just need to make sure that you're getting your sources and your information about this outbreak from reliable sources that you can trust, such as the Center for Disease Control Prevention the World Health Organization and not your friends on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram because they aren't researchers trained in epidemiology and infectious disease control. You just need to make sure that you're getting all your information from those reliable sources. You know, I think one of the important things is, you know, as you're listening to us, like we, part of what we're doing is giving you the the big picture on where did this outbreak come from? What is the disinformation response? But we're not your your. We shouldn't be your day to day go to source on everything coronavirus related. Yeah. Um, in terms of preparation, um, in terms of you know what to think about it. Uh, that really you should be checking out CDC and your and check out also your local public health, your county uh, health department mm-hmm. because they're going to have the best information about your area. And what resources your community has that you can start taking advantage to be prepared and what resources your community has that will be implemented in case of an outbreak. So, Emma, what else have you learned throughout this series? I think the biggest thing I've taken away is just being able to decipher what is disinformation and what is reliable information that I should be taking from. So when you say that you've learned about how to parse through disinformation and real information, like what strategy has have you learned? I'm looking to see where what sources information is coming from, if it's coming from an accredited public health agency or coming from researchers and scientists and health professionals in the field that know what they're talking about and can be accredited. Um, just not taking information from people that aren't trained in public health and infectious disease control, just making sure that the information I'm getting is accurate and coming from reliable sources and just going back to seeing where it's coming from and what information they're pulling from, like if they're pulling from actual data or some generalizations that they're just making based off of things that they're hearing. Um, And then talking about Nahneman last week, there's a lot I learned on the PPE that we should be partaking in. Um, 
Because you, when you walk outside and there's an outbreak, you see a lot of people wearing surgical masks. But that's actually not the best way to prevent getting a disease because those masks stop you from spreading the disease and it captures those droplets from your respiratory droplets, but it's not preventing other people's respiratory droplets from coming into contact with you. So if you really want to be taking the most precautions you can to prevent yourself from getting the COVID-19 or any other sort of flu or cold, you need to be getting distance from people that are sick and making sure that you're practicing good personal hygiene and washing your hands. And if need be, to stop the chance of coming into contact with those infected would be an N95 respirator mask. The surgical mask will not help stop those pathogens from coming into contact with you. So I think that was the most information I've gotten out of the last couple of interviews. There's a lot of information people just need to know about. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting the synthesis, you know, as we talk to different different experts, their different perspectives on it. Also, even how public health recommendations have changed, such as the, uh, you know, making sure that you're wearing eye protection in addition to wearing a respiratory mask. So I thought that you're, you're right. It's interesting just like how getting the right information is really important and how it's more than just a mask that you go and wear into a group of people because that's not that much protection. It is that social distancing. It is staying home when you're sick. It's, it is staying, um, ensuring that you're washing your hands. Um, I thought that was an interesting synthesis of, of what our experts have taught us so far. And I think it's important too to remain updated on this information because this is a new strain of the coronavirus that we haven't seen before. So as time is going on, we're finding out more data and more information about this, and we're better figuring out how to prevent this from spreading and how to treat people that are infected by it. So I think it's important just to make sure that we're being updated on good, reliable information because this isn't something we've had to deal with before. Also, uh, we talked about it a little bit in our conversation today with Dr. with Robert Nisgoda that we need to stop with the racism, like people this is a virus it's not people right people Mm -hmm. might the virus might be in people but you don't know by looking at a person if they are affected by coronavirus and the fact that we have students being bullied over this even we already have reports of chinese restaurants not receiving patronage i think is just a little bit crazy like sorry to end on a kind of ranty note (laughs) but i just i just really think it's important that we as public health people give you the absolute best information. Right now, the best information is we need to stop with the stigma around this disease. For sure. Let us know what you thought about this episode at cphgradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-g-r-a-d-a-m-b-a-s-s-a-d-o-r at uiowa.edu. That's it for this week. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Emma Metter and Ian Bukta. This episode was produced by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Robert Nesgoda. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. All right, I'm going to try my OGA impression. See you next week.